resides in their laps. And the Atlantic writes about Todd Libby. He conceives, publishes, and designs his own magazine on his own terms, for his own pleasure, under his own steam. What liberty. And they go on to describe Esopus as an advertising-free art, literature, and culture magazine that employs the most ambitious special printing effects done today. Todd will talk about putting together Esopus 22, the latest issue which explores that connection between the world of medicine and the world of art. Todd. Thank you, Debo. Uh, thanks, everyone, for coming tonight. Uh, thanks to the program in Narrative Medicine, Rita Sharon, and especially to Donna Belesco and Cindy Smollett for putting together this evening. Can you hear me? Can everybody hear me okay? Like lean in a little more? How's that? Aha! I have a backache by the end of this thing. Um, so uh, I wanted to uh, thank uh, also Penn State University Press for co-hosting this event this evening. And most of all, I want to thank Danielle Spencer, uh, who is an old friend of mine. I've known her for many years, and I was very intrigued when she became involved with the Narrative Medicine program, first as a student and then later as a faculty member. Uh, I was just fascinated by this program, and when I came up with the idea of doing an issue on medicine, she was one of the first people I contacted to contribute. So basically, the idea of the issue uh, is to explore the many interconnections between the art world and the world of medicine. Uh, there are quite a few ways to do that and many angles to, in which to do it, but the biggest uh, approach I wanted to do was make sure to include many people from the arts, so filmmakers, artists, poets, designers, musicians, but also uh, a number of people from the medicine world as well, so nurses, doctors, dentists, phlebotomists, you name it. Um, and I got started with the issue, uh, I figured out a way to begin it, and it seemed like the right uh, contact to start with was with uh, a thing by William Carlos Williams, who happened to have feet in both worlds. Um, he was obviously a doctor and also a poet, a well-known poet. Um, we found these prescription pad notes from him in the Beinecke Library in Yale University, and he had hundreds of them. We reproduced 60 in the issue. Um, in a series of fold-outs that kind of pop out of the magazine. And they contained his notes for poetry, they contained his notes for uh, theater pieces, for critical essays, uh, and they're really fascinating. And he did them in between seeing patients. So whenever he had a moment from his job, he would jot down a note uh, related to something creative he was doing uh, in the arts field. Uh, the piece on Williams also includes this truly amazing letter that he wrote to a young colleague in 1942, and it talks about his decision to be a poet and a doctor. Uh, not one or the other, but both, and how that decision and how those two halves of his professional life meshed in very interesting ways uh, in, his, in his work and his career and everything else. So that was a great way to start the issue. Um, each issue of Asopus generally has six artist projects, and these are it's kind of an interesting term, but they're, they're meant to be a chance for an artist, a contemporary artist, to really explore the page, to explore the notion of print, to figure out ways they can expand their practice, challenge themselves, do something different, and hopefully challenge us as well in formatting and other concerns. So the first one in the issue is by a man named Fred Tomaselli. He's a very well-known artist based in New York City in Brooklyn, and he did what are called chemical celestial portraits. Now these are 
astrological charts, basically, and they're based on 12 different people who he spoke with. Um, he asked them for a list of every drug they'd ever taken. Many are not <laughs> prescription drugs, or at least not legal prescription drugs. And then he basically recreated their astrological chart, replacing the stars with photograms of each pill, uh, and then the, the names of the pills themselves. So we did 12 of these, one for each month, so it's essentially an astrological calendar uh, taken in from this very different angle. Uh, a second project was by Melissa Meyer, who's also a very well-known artist based here in New York. Melissa had a father who was a famous orthodontist in uh, New York in the 40s, 50s, and 60s, and he self-published a book called Headgear Orthodontia in 1968. It's the most gothic, terrifying book because it's filled with images like this of people with very strange, bizarre headgear. Uh, but she decided to use those images. Her father is long gone, but she wanted to sort of do a duet with him, basically, where she used those images from the book and then added in elements from her own paintings to create these really beautiful collages. So there are 15 of these in the issue as well. Uh, Nina Kachadurian is a uh, well-known conceptual artist uh, who often works with books. Uh, and she does a project that's ongoing called Sorted Books, where she'll go to an institutional library, usually she'll be commissioned, and they'll ask her to take the books in the library and create these stacks, which are basically very short little narratives related to the books she chooses and what's on their spine. So you can see these are all medicine-related because she went to the library of William Burroughs in Lawrence, Kansas, and it turns out he was a big medical thriller fan, So, and also medical books in general, but mostly thrillers. So... She did uh, seven of these for us, and then she did an enormous poster called The Hospital. I'm just going to give you 20 seconds to read through the spines, because it's a very, it's a story of a hospital visit gone horribly awry, basically. <laughs> so she's very funny, which is always nice, but, but she's clever and very smart, and it's a, great, it's a great way to engage that topic of medicine in a kind of a lighthearted way. Uh, the, the, the grand finale project in this issue was by uh, William Villalongo, based in Brooklyn, and he did a project called Anatomy of a Muse, and the final part of that is this very elaborate, incredibly beautiful fold-out, which reminds me of anatomical textbooks from the 50s and 60s that had these very elaborate uh, you know, anatomical uh, diagrams. So this folds down, and then it also folds out. So again, a, a wonderful mixing of medicine and anatomy with obviously a very painterly kind of effect. Um, we don't just do artist projects in the issue, though, uh, because we're meant to be very sort of resolutely multidisciplinary. There are many other contents as well, and many are parts of regular series. We do a series called 100 Frames in every issue, which involves taking 100 stills from a particular film and reproducing them in the issue. This is, does anyone recognize any of these stills? This is from a really amazing documentary called Hospital by Frederick Wiseman, whose new film in Jackson Heights has just opened, actually. Uh, it's an amazing movie, and I urge you, it's not easy to see, but if it ever screens anywhere nearby, it's a, a remarkable document of uh, a, a, an overworked and overwhelmed emergency room in 1970 in New York City. So we did uh, a series of spreads uh, with 100 stills from this, and that was introduced by Paul Austin, who's a memoirist and author who wrote a wonderful book called Something for the Pain about his experiences as an emergency room doctor in, in the South. 
Uh, we also do something with the Museum of Modern Art in every issue called uh, Modern Artifacts. And for this issue, Michelle Elligott, the chief archivist, recommended we reproduce materials from the MoMA's Arts and Therapy Program, which was an amazing program they did in the 40s for returning vets from World War II. And it involved cognitive therapy and also psychological therapy. But amazing photos of, of veterans uh, getting well or recovering with the help of art. We also do something with uh, the Magnum Photos Archive in almost every issue called Analog Recovery. For this one, the photographer Stuart Franklin uh, shared a bunch of photos from the early 80s of a Durex condom factory in uh, England during the height of the AIDS crisis. These are amazing photographs as well. Uh, and then it's really important to me that our readers have some kind of connection and relationship with our contributors. So in almost every issue we do what's called the subscriber invitational, and we'll ask our readers before the issue comes out to submit something, a piece of material, a photograph, a writing, something that then our contributors can use and work with to create something for the magazine. In this case, we did two. It was a big issue. And the first uh, was we asked our readers to describe in subjective terms uh, a recent ailment or a recent illness they suffered from or a chronic ailment that they had. And I didn't want them to say, I have Lyme disease. I wanted them to say, it feels like this. It feels like I'm on fire. It feels, you know, I'm, I get, it gets me very depressed and I question my existential, you know, wellness, et cetera, et cetera. And people did a great job. Our readers are very, you know, they're, they're intrepid. They're good. So we got uh, medical illustration students from the University of Illinois, Chicago to then illustrate these. Uh, we had 15 in total. Uh, the one on the left is indeed chronic Lyme disease. The one on the right is uh, an oral hallucination that one of our readers has had for years and years. Uh, and then the other one was my favorite, and we asked our readers to describe the perfect waiting room, because we all have our opinions about that, I'm sure. Uh, and we got Thomas Junker Jensen, who's a well-known uh, designer, interior designer here in New York, to do renderings, incorporating all of those suggestions. And these fold out. There are three in total, but this is, this is literally the, the dream waiting room. It could never possibly happen in New York City, where real estate is at such a premium. But it includes things, amazing suggestions from our readers. A, a separate area on the left for check-ins, so you have a privacy when you're giving your information. Um, a little hand sanitizer and an automatic check-in when you come in the door, a special room for children uh, off to itself. Uh, you may, the funnier one is uh, the voodoo doll. You may notice on the coffee table on the right is of a doctor, just in case you want to get out your frustrations while you're waiting. And a bunch of other things as well. But it was a really, it was a very fun project. And again, our readers really came through. Um, one of the last things I, I mentioned earlier, Danielle was one of the first people I spoke with about doing something for the issue. Ian and MK were literally <laughs> the last people. I, I, we barely made it, but they were so game to do this. And when I, as soon as I saw their work, I thought, I've got to have this in the issue. And they were able to contribute excerpts from their graphic novels, which they're going to talk about in a little bit. And Danielle's obviously going to talk about her piece for the issue, Critical Conversations, which is really one of the cornerstones of the entire thing. Um, quickly before I finish up, I just want to say we end every issue with a CD. I think you heard some of the songs playing earlier. Uh, this one was themed organs, and we asked musicians to basically pick an organ and write a song about it. Um, so that's kind of it. Uh, I just I, I could talk a lot about the issue, but I'd rather have these guys talk about it first, and then maybe we can take questions later about uh, how you feel about it. So thank you. Danielle's next.
Thank you so much, Todd. Um, you know, we talk about uh, our responsibility as a society to promote and nurture the arts as a, a vehicle and a space where we can reflect, understand one another, understand ourselves better. Um, and this seems to me uh, the type of uh, project that really requires our attention and support. Uh, I think it's, it's a truly singular and, and beautiful vision. Thank you very much, Todd. Daniel Spencer is a faculty member uh, in the program in Narrative Medicine, as well as at the Einstein Cordozo Masters of Science program in Bioethics in New York. She's been published in The Lancet, Wired, Creative Nonfiction, Hungarian Review, and Esipus. Talk to her about the Hungarian connection sometimes. It's interesting. She's also worked for many years as the art director for artist and musician David Byrne, and I'm sure there are some stories there as well. Um, and she's worked with photographer Nan Golden as well. Danielle is a graduate of our Narrative Medicine Master's program, and uh, she wanted to make sure that I tell you that she also holds the same name as Russell Crowe's ex-wife. So, Danielle. Thank you, Deepa. I just, because I know a lot of you might have come here expecting to see her, the other Danielle Spencer. So, in fact, nobody here has ever heard of her. She's Australian. She's a singer as well. So, um, uh, Deepa's lingering here because I'm going to conscript him into a little dramatic reading in a second. But I just wanted to say first, thank you, Todd. It's, I've, I've, it's been my dream for millennia to be in a sopus and um, and I remember when we met at a cafe in Brooklyn and I pitched him several ideas for the issue and he was um, very decisive that this is the one that he wanted to feature in the issue but I think that so the project it's called the 360 degree clinical oral history project and the basic idea is to go into a clinical environment and conduct interviews with doctor patient and then also everybody else that we can get our hands on so um, in this case, phlebotomist, um, technician, um, administrative assistant, nurse, hospitalist, you name it. Um, would have been more, it would have been, you know, it, the, the project could also include family members, friends, uh, somebody who works for the insurance uh, company and so forth. The idea is to be really expensive in that regard. Um, so uh, Deepu has agreed to be a reader. So if you read portions in yellow. Um, this is an excerpt from... I th- I think oh, sure. oh, yeah, okay. Is it on? I'm breaking out in a sweat here. I'm just like, God, you're making me nervous. I'm really not good at this stuff. Okay. All right. I'm a receptionist. I greet the patients as they come in, new patients, sign them in and take co-pays and just hope that they have a comfortable, relaxing visit. It's scary, and they're nervous when they come in. I connect with a lot of them. It's kind of sad a lot of days when we lose people and stuff, because we do tend to connect. When they don't come anymore, you're like, hmm, you wonder. I don't know anything about their clinical status. It depends on how much they tell me. Some will stand there and talk to me for 10 minutes. You just see what they're going through. I've been here for six and a half years. I was actually an OBGYN before, and there you see babies from the beginning, so from one extreme to the other. Of course, lots of bad things happen there also, but they're both rewarding. 
I really didn't know anything before working here. I'd had family members go through cancer, but I never really knew how it affects everybody. And visit-wise, if you see people come in by themselves, you wish they had somebody with them. I don't know. It's sad. Then again, like I said, it's rewarding also, because I do enjoy the patients and stuff. I'm sure they enjoy you. So they say. Has it gotten easier over time? Yeah. Uh, some days are harder than others. We have that dreaded list in the kitchen where when people pass, it's just... Sometimes the minute you walk in in the morning, and that can make a day bad. There's a list in the office kitchen of patients who have passed away. Yeah, it's just eight and a half by 11, so it goes down, and then as the page fills up, the top goes off. It's actually right on the refrigerator. How many names are there per week? It depends. On there now, I think the latest one probably has like 12 or 13 names. That could be over a two or three week span. Sometimes it's larger than others. I see. That is a lot. Two or three weeks? Yeah, it's sad. Do you talk to your colleagues about it? Well, we do because we get close to the patients. Unfortunately, we've lost a lot of good ones. I'm sorry. She started crying. That's one thing I don't like about it. Indicating Virginia's crucifix necklace. Do you mind my asking if you ever pray for patients? We do a lot. I pray for them. Most of them, actually. Just everybody that walks in. Sometimes you see them leaving, you know you're never going to see them again, the family and everything. You mean if they're being discharged to hospice? Yeah. It must be hard. Yeah, it is. Don't make me cry again. So this was um, a woman who uh, we call Virginia. All of the participants have been de-identified, and the location has not been identified either. And she worked as a receptionist in a large suburban oncology practice somewhere in the northeastern United States. Um, And uh, we also interviewed um, the oncologist in the practice, or one of the many oncologists in the practice who we called Dr. Roy. So um, we're going to read to you from there. Um, And now, since Deepu is actually a doctor, I'm going to make him play the role of the doctor, so I'm going to interview him. Um, So what's on your mind going into this visit with Annie? Annie's the patient. I'm excited for Annie because I just saw the report from her surgeon in the CAT scan report. It showed that there was a response, further response, in the cancer in the liver, the liver metastasis. All along, since I met her nine months ago, I've been hoping for her to have an adequate response so that she can have surgery. She has metastatic colon cancer, and we've been doing chemotherapy up front to try to shrink this liver lesion. If it's shrunk to a certain degree, she may be a candidate for surgery, and that's really her only chance for a cure. Without that, we would just be giving her more chemo, and it would be more palliative. And this sort of gives us more hope that there could be a cure for her. If she could have that liver lesion taken out, and she could have, then she could have colon surgery as well. That would put her in a different category, like a potentially curable situation. I literally just got the report from her surgeon yesterday, and I spoke to him today, and he was also optimistic about it. It's going to be challenging surgically and anatomically, but he's eager to do the surgery now. Whereas previously, at every step when we had been doing a CAT scan, he was like, well, there's some shrinkage, but not enough. She needs more chemo. So we've been going through this for months now, so this is sort of a big step. Now she's probably heard it from her surgeon, but I'll, able, but I'll be able to talk, her, talk to her more about it. Do you ever share your thoughts and concerns and fears with the patients as you consider them privately? 
Mm, that's a tough one. I think, uh, no, I don't. Because I think as an oncologist, you kind of have to be the strong person. You have to really be the authority figure. You have to give them direction and hope. So fears, no. It's, it's not really about fear. It could be about making different decisions, like maybe not continuing chemotherapy, but rather going on palliative care or hospice. But it's part of our job to be the leader, the person who gives guidance and advice. I don't think it would do the patient any good if I were afraid or if I conveyed that to them. At times, I think it's natural to feel that way, but I don't think it's a part of our job description. Do you ever dream about your patients? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, it happens once in a while. Yeah. I think it probably happened early in my career more than now, though. Uh, is there anything that you feel can go unsaid, not necessarily between you and Annie, the patient, but between a physician and a patient in a clinical relationship? Yeah, I think so, because it's all about timing. For example, we deal a lot with patients who are at the end of their life, and the conversation about stopping chemotherapy and moving on to palliative care and hospice has to happen at the right time, and they have to be ready to hear it. Although we may be thinking about it for a long time, the actual presentation of that discussion might not happen immediately. So that can be a little bit hard because, you know, you're on a different plane. You, you think different things. We have to allow the patient some time to get closer to where you are before you can have that kind of conversation because otherwise it might not go that well. I think the patient experience is so, what's the word? It's just a very difficult one. Having been on the other side, whether it's myself or a family member, being a patient, I always go back to that and think about what the experience was like for any of us in dealing with physicians and nurses and the whole team. As physicians, I think we often forget what the patient experience is like, and probably for many of the staff here, everyone gets kind of stuck in their routines and forgets that the patient is the one who has the disease, and they're the ones who are experiencing something that can be very difficult. There are so many things that you internalize or that you perceive as a patient that you're never really given a form to express. Do you also feel like you don't have a forum to express aspects of your experience as a physician? Definitely. There's just not enough time in the day. There's just not enough time. I'd say 90% of what we experience gets internalized, and there's no place to let it out, you know? So in the last excerpt that we're going to read from is a very brief one, and this is the first of many interviews that we conducted with the patient, who the patient who we, we uh, call Annie. Um, and uh, so we're going to switch again. So what brings you here today? I'm here to see Dr. R. after having had 14 chemo treatments and having seen the surgeon. The tumor on my liver, which is in a very bad place, as he says, it's in the crotch of the liver. It has shrunk, and he's going to do the surgery, about which I am ecstatic. Everyone is very, very optimistic about my outcome. When I first met Dr. R., we clicked immediately. She's just this amazing woman, and she looks like she's 12 years old. I told her I didn't know how she had done all the schooling being 12, and she has children. Golly. Uh, I felt like asking her, does your mother know you're here and wearing a white outfit? Anyway, my first question to her was, do I have reason to be cautiously optimistic? And she looked at me and said, you have every reason to be completely optimistic. Going into this particular visit, what's on your mind? What's on my mind now is that I'm in transition from the chemo stage to the operative stage. And one thing that brings me here is that I knit a little scarf for Dr. R and I want to give it to her. Then, just to find out, you know, when the next chemo will be, since Dr. S wants another one before the surgery, just to check in. So thank you, Deepu. Thank you.
Um, so this is all in the article, so if you buy a copy of the issue, you can read the whole thing. Um, so this is doctor-patient, and as I said, we interviewed also many of the other people who worked. Uh, it was two visits, actually. There was one where she was visiting the practice for just a regular checkup. That's the one that you, you heard uh, from just now. And then I went back when she was admitted as an inpatient um, to receive chemotherapy. She had to get it at the hospital. And so there, there was a hospitalist there and nurses and lab techs and phlebotomists and, you know, everybody who's in the hospital. So it was able to speak to a lot of them. Um, and um, one of the things that emerged through this process that I, I found... Oh, I'm so, I'm so sorry. I, I forgot to mention my esteemed collaborator, Stephanie Adler-Yuan, was not able to come tonight. Um, and she joined me as the co-author for this project. And, Steph, when you listen to the recording, I'm sorry for not saying it earlier. Um, and she was an invaluable part of this, and we, we conducted this portion of the project together. Um, and she works for the Schwartz Center now, and she's a graduate of our very own narrative medicine program as well. Um, so we did most of this together. Uh, so one of the things that emerged was, I mean, I think that, that one has to have a lot of humility conducting a project like this. It's really a heuristic process. You can't go in assuming that you know what you're going to find. I mean, the same is true with many, many things. Um, but particularly here, uh, in my experience. And one of them was, you know, when I was a kid, how many of you have read uh, anything by Studs Terkel, the oral historian? Let's see the hand. Okay, good, lots. So you remember the book that he wrote, Working? Um, uh, he interviewed people about their jobs. And um, was it in the 40s or 50s? Decades ago. Anyway, I, re- I read it as a child, and I was fascinated because... You know, he interviewed um, bricklayers and factory masons and, every, you know, all, all kinds of people. And he, I really felt that, every, you know, everybody, most people are not interviewed about what they do every day. And most people have fascinating things to say about what they do every day. And I think that uh, interviewing them respectfully about what they do every day is a way of honoring that. Um, and this project really shifted more towards, toward, I mean, there was a lot of that in there as well. You know, inter- interviewing the phlebotomist who was very shy, um, but happy to speak with us. And, you know, she was explaining that uh, you have to be very careful in double-checking the IDs of the patients against the vials because if you get it wrong, then the oncologist might prescribe a different dosage of some drug or chemotherapy, and the phlebotomist feels accountable for this, which, of course, they are. But hearing her describe it certainly brought it to life in a different way for us. Um, So... Uh, the project is to conduct this kind of intervention, if you will, at a given site. So this is what the piece that's represented, that's published in SOPUS is. It's at a given, you know, one particular site. And to hear different voices together at that site um, and see what happens when you bring those voices together in an edited transcript. The project, writ large, the idea is to then juxtapose a number of different sites, all within healthcare in the U.S., um, and by doing that, bring those different sites and the people at those different sites into conversation with one another um, because healthcare is something that is relevant to all of us, obviously, not just those of us in this self-selected crowd who showed up here tonight. Um, and there's just a st- such a tremendous diversity of, of, of contexts, challenges, strengths, um, participants in healthcare in, in this country. So, for example... Um, uh, one potential site is to go to the Sand Hills region of Nebraska, which is a very sparsely populated area. 
Um, and I know that um, access to care is a huge challenge there. You know, people have to drive hundreds of miles to get to care. There's a shortage of primary care physicians. There's a lot of telemedicine. I know this. I have family there. That's why the connection was made. But then again, I don't know anything. You know, I have to, I have to know that I, will, that I will go in and have to have the humility to learn what there is to be learned there. Um, so uh, yeah, I'll wrap up. I just, there was a couple of themes that emerged in the piece in this Theosopus piece that was published that were very interesting to us. Um, you know, uh, one of them in particular was, you know, in the excerpts that you just heard, um, the nature of the doctor-patient relationship. And this actually, it's a little bit not representative that, that I chose to read these um, because really the piece is more balanced. It's, it's the whole, kind of the point is not just to focus on the doctor-patient dyad, but to show how it's, that's not the only part of care. That said, um, you know, it's interesting that you hear in these, in these brief excerpts that Dr. Roy, as we called her, really was at pains to humanize Annie to us. I mean, actually, maybe that, was, that didn't make it in. But anyway, she, she was. You know, she told us about, oh, you know, how um, Annie was always reading interesting books and she was just an amazing person and so forth. And then, as you heard, you know, Annie's description of her oncologist, she, she characterized her more than once as a 12-year-old girl. Um, which was funny and sweet. Um, and at the same time, there's something interesting there. You know, she's really, to figure her oncologist as a child was a, an interesting kind of role inversion. Um, and, you know, so we can ask what's the significance of these kind of characterizations. I mean, to, to my mind, there's a sense of recognition of one another beyond um, any kind of reductive role. Right, you know, doctor-patient, and yet they're both humans at the same time. Um, and at the same time, we can see it also as a play with the hierarchy uh, by affecting this kind of inversion. Um, and one is reminded of Anatole Braillard's fantastical description of his ideal doctor in The Patient Examines the Doctor, uh, in which he wrote, while the doctor in- inevitably feels superior to me because he's the doctor and I'm the patient, I'd like him to know that I feel superior to him too, that he is my patient also, and I have